want to share just briefly with you this evening um, some thoughts on work. Uh, work seems to be in the news a lot these days. People are talking about jobs that they're losing, and the government is talking about jobs that they would like to provide. And uh, we have been going through the book of Ecclesiastes for the past few months in our Sunday school class. And I uh, thought I would just share some of the uh, nuggets that um, we get from that book. And we've been going verse by verse, so it's been taking a while for us with only half an hour to do it. But what we want to focus on this evening is motivation to work. And every day, all of us, or most of us, except those who are retired, uh, go to work. Um, some, rain or shine, snow, storm, or sleet, we are there. And uh, the question that we often don't think about or consider is the motivation behind what we do. What is the driving force behind our work? You know, some go to work because they want to earn a living to provide for their family and their friends. Some go because they just have a, gen- a tremendous passion for what they do. But we want to look at four uh, points this evening on work. If we're not going to work, if we're not working from a motivation of jealousy, greed, or a partnership to share the benefits that we get from work, or because we want to get some kind of status or prestige from the work, what is our motivation for work? And so the first point we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Work motivated by jealousy. Notice, he mentions the word envy of the neighbors. We see here the observation made by the teacher king, David's son, Solomon, that was just enough to just drive him insane. He looked at all of these things that were happening, and this one of the things that sort of wanted to drive him up the wall. The need people have to do better than their neighbors purely out of jealousy. He noticed that the circles of life were driven by a spirit of competition. Everyone seemed to be competing with one another to get ahead, for success, to outdo one another. And he basically saw two types of people who make up these circles of life. The lazy and the workaholic. These are the two types of people that he's focusing on here in this passage. Now, there are some other people, but he focuses on or zeroes in on these two groups of people, the lazy and the workaholic. The cravings people have today for better clothes, cars, and lavish homes all appear to be so empty when we think that these are individuals who were created in the image and likeness of God and ought to be pursuing what God desires and what brings them glory, honor, and praise. But it is contrary. We see the preacher-teacher talking about here. He describes the work motivation of the workaholic. And he basically says that jealousy, or envy, as he uses the word here, and the the translation we're using here is a New Living Translation. So the word here is envy, but it's basically jealousy, a continuous desire to stay ahead of everyone else. 
But notice, he makes another statement earlier in the book, in chapter 2 and verse 24, which is very clear about what he thinks. He says, so I decided there's nothing better than joy, than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. And so even though he acknowledged that work and all of its benefits are gifts from God, it's also obvious that like all of the other blessings that God gives, work can be distorted, manipulated, tainted by sin. And we see that happening over and over in our society. People are are corrupt in their jobs and doing all kinds of things to outdo the law and outdo one another. The implication here is that some of our work can be motivated by jealousy, by the sinful desire to get ahead in life, by getting ahead of other people. Now, there are some people who are in the fields of uh, who are economists, and uh, some economists see this competitive urge as a self-interest, as the engine that drives a consumer economy. And so for some economists, this competitive spirit is, is good. But Ecclesiastes sees a deeper motivation at work, motivation that comes from a selfish heart. That's the way the preacher-teacher king sees motivation here in this passage as he describes it. And so this motivation is also what causes people to cheat the government on taxes. It's uh, what causes uh, people to take advantage of their customers or to get into tremendous credit card debt. All because they are jealous of what other people have and are doing everything they possibly can to get what others have. Now there are a lot of things that motivate people to jealousy, or that, that, that cause people to be tempted to be jealous of other people. Uh, a person's looks or abilities is one thing that people are sometimes jealous of. Someone's successful position in life. They have worked hard and they've accomplished much and people have a tendency to be jealous of that. Uh, I knew a, a, a family who moved away from another Christian family because the family who they were living to were so jealous of their accomplishments in life that they were continuously saying all kinds of rude, mean and rude things to them. And these are believers. These are not unbelievers. Two Christian families. One jealous of the other one because of the other one's success in business and in life. So it happens among the body of Christ. It may be a person's job. We may be jealous that a person have a job that we always wanted to have, but we never seem to have been able to land that job. Maybe a person's grades. You may be a, a, in a class with someone who's always excelling, and you can't seem to get there. But the thing is, they're studying, and you're not. But you're still jealous of the grades that they have and their, and their, their, their educational ability to learn. And then there's those special relationships that people have with others, uh, a wife or fiancé that, that people become jealous of. But of all the things that people are tempted to be jealous of the most, that which is mostly at the top of the list is a neighbor's possessions. And if we look at the Tenth Commandment, we'll see that most of the things that it tells us not to covet are things that money can buy. 
People work hard to get more money and buy more things. And when that fails them, they simply pull out the plastic and engage in what some economists call retail therapy. And they get themselves in deeper trouble as a result of it. The world is full of Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses, all because of jealousy. But the teacher king observed something else. In, chapter, in verse 5 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says, Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. Now, apart from people who, works, who, who work too much, the workaholic that he just talked about, person who's driving themselves because they're jealous of what others have and they're continuously going, there are people who, comp- who, who just simply refuse to work, period. They don't want to have anything to do with work. Lazy people consider themselves, consider dashing around to become successful in life as just a meaningless task. It just doesn't make any kind of sense to them at all. Instead, they waste their time. They're quite content to sit around idle, doing nothing but wasting time. Their behavior is not just, when they don't think about this, but their behavior is not just harmful to themselves, but also harmful to those who depend upon them. They don't think about those who depend upon them, they only simply think about themselves. But there's more than one person in the equation. Instead of joining the rat race, they simply drop out altogether. They have, at some particular point in their lives, come to the realization that they just can't keep up with the Joneses. They just can't do it. And so they don't even try. All they do is sit back, and as the preacher teacher says, fold their idle or lazy hands. Just doing nothing. But this does something else that they don't realize in the long term. It can be extremely self-destructive, as many people have found out. As the teacher king describes it, in the latter part of verse 5, he says, leading them to ruin. In other words, the fool eats what he has until, all that he, until he has nothing left at all, until it's all gone. So we see a, a unique picture here, an interesting picture the teacher king print, print, um, presents for us here. He presents us with a picture of complacency and ignorant self-destruction. And this points out a a deeper damage than just the wasting of resources. As the preacher teacher says, bringing himself to ruin, using up all of his resources, it brings himself to a deeper state than that. Because you see, idleness has a tendency to eat away not only at what a person has, but what a person is. It wears away at self-control, a grip on reality, the capacity to care for oneself and for anybody else. And in the end, the loss of all self-respect. That's what the preacher teacher talks about when he says, bringing themselves to ruin. Lost it all. But then verses 4 and 5 describe something else. It describes two equal and opposite errors. 
In the same way that work can be all-consuming, idleness can be self-cannibalizing. The bottom line is that the behavior of both the lazy and the workaholic are just stupid and reckless. That's the bottom line that the preacher-teacher wants to convey. And so that poses a question to us then. Which of these errors is more a temptation for you as you go about your work? Your daily chores, goings and comings. Maybe you're tempted to be jealous of what other people have and weigh yourself away trying to get it. Or maybe you think that you're above all of that. And yet you have such a negative attitude about work that sometimes you just avoid it altogether. Which of those two states are you in tonight? There are many people who are in those states. One of those two states, or probably both. But the teacher king has some good advice in the next verse, verse 6 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. He says, and yet, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Here we see a, a striking contrast built a striking comparison built on a double contrast. Quietness is contrasted with hard work. And quietness here is seen as contentment. And so when he says quietness, he's speaking about contentment. Contentment is what is implied here. The quiet person is not only peaceful, but also what we might call, what we might describe as cool, calm, and collected. Nothing phases them. Instead of always striving for more, he or she is already satisfied with what they have. Doesn't matter what anybody else has. They are completely satisfied with what God has blessed them with. Quietness. The contrast is reinforced by the difference between the two. By having a hand, one handful and having two handsful. The person with two handfuls is a two-fisted consumer who is always grabbing as much as they can and always reaching for more, always grasping for more. In other words, what they have is never enough. They always want more, especially when they see the success of, the, of their neighbor. Whatever their neighbor has, regardless of what they have, they still want more. And it goes on and on and on. But sometimes less is more. And this is what is exhibited in the the quiet person, the person who is quiet, the person who is content. He's working hard enough to have the decent, one decent handful of what he needs in life, which is enough. He doesn't want any more of that. One handful is enough. Instead of demanding more and more, he gratefully accepts what God has given him. And that poses another question for us. Have we learned to be content with what we have? Have we learned to be content with what God has blessed it. You see, when we are not content with what we have, we're not satisfied with what God is doing for us. We are complaining and griping when we're not content. But when we're content, we are satisfied with what God is providing. The quiet person is just like Jesus, who always shows us the best, best way to live. Jesus never folded his hands in idleness. We never saw that throughout his ministry. There was never a time we saw Jesus 
folding his hands in idleness. Neither did we see him jealous of whatever possessions other people had, which included just about almost everybody who was around him, except for his disciples. And even they had more than he had in terms of material possessions. He worked basically hard in the calling of his father. He worked hard. The calling that his father has given him, had given him was something that he was really focused on. The calling to seek and to save lost sinners. That was his primary focus, and he worked hard at it. As he worked, he just trusted his father to provide for his daily needs, and he remained content with the basic things that God provided for him in life. Never complained from day to day. He was satisfied and content. A tremendous example for us to follow, don't you think? Good example. And so here's the application principle then relative to work motivated, motivated by jealousy. Jesus is now inviting us to live the same way that he lived. The better way that we see here in Ecclesiastes, outlined by the preacher king. Work hard, but be content with what you have. Find your satisfaction only in the goodness of God. We might want to be like the little girl who misquoted Psalm 23 by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. It was misquoted, but it sounds right, don't you think? She said, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I want. Most of us want so many other things in life that it's hard for us to say what that little girl said and mean it from the heart. But whether Jesus is all we want or not, the truth is that he is all that we need. Amen? He's all we need. We don't need anything more than what he is to us. And so we must apply self-control instead of jealousy to our motivation to work hard. Take away that jealousy and add self-control in its place. And we will find a vast difference in our motivation to work regardless of who has whatever they have around us or next door. Now, if not motivated by jealousy, some may engage in work motivated by greediness. Once again, the teacher king makes a careful observation about the way people live. This, too, was the kind of madness that sort of blew his mind when he saw it. Verse 7 and 8. He said, I observe yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet he works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. Now, the the teacher king saw it as meaningless and and depressing, not the man. Here he tells the story of a, a sad story. It's really a sad story when you think about it. Sad story of a man, an individual who is all alone, a lonely individual. He doesn't state the man's name, 
But he lives, it appears that he lives and works alone. It doesn't say whether he had a wife or not, but what is clear is that he does not have an heir. Doesn't have a, a son or a brother or anybody to inherit all this wealth that he's accumulating. So instead of working for the blessing or benefit of anyone else, he's working only for himself. Greed. Doesn't have to, but he's doing it. And so all that the teacher king saw as he looked at this man's life was vanity, meaninglessness from beginning to end. He worked from sunrise to sunset with probably no retirement in view. He just wanted to keep on going, keep on accumulating. He was never satisfied and always wanted more. And he was making some costly sacrifices to do so. To advance his career and to, and to build up his bank account. Without ever considering whether it, was, whether it was all worth it at all. There's no way his possessions could ever have given him the kind of satisfaction that his soul really needed. And he had no one to share it with. No one in his life to share it with, according to what the, the teacher king tells us here. His life would, be an, would come to an unhappy end, which the teacher king summed up as meaningless and depressing. Who else is benefiting from your work besides you? Ever thought about that? Who else is benefiting from your work Besides you, there are many people who work only for themselves. They earn all their money themselves and they spend it all on themselves. Who else, like this man, is benefiting from your work besides you? What the teacher king observed under the sun should serve as a warning for all of us. Not only against greediness, but against isolation and selfishness. And a sinful addiction to work. Many people have a dream. Which they work hard to see realized. But living and working for greediness. Is one of the best ways to turn your dream into a nightmare. Many people have experienced that. And so Ecclesiastes clearly teaches that work can be a pleasure but not if pursued for selfish purposes. He has nothing against working hard. He has nothing against having pleasure in the work that you do. But if it's being done for selfish purposes, it's going to eventually backfire. And as he describes, it's going to end in a life that you only will be able to describe as meaningless and depressing. Come to a depressing end. So then the, the, the application principle for us then relative to work motivated by greedy, greediness, is this. To find pleasure in our work. We need to ask ourselves a question in verse 8 and come up with the right answer. Who am I working for? Is the question we must ask ourselves. For the Christian, the right answer is not just for me, but for God's glory and the benefit of others, including those I love in the body of Christ in the kingdom of God, in the family of God.
But instead of being motivated by jealousy or greed, it can be a blessing to us to work motivated by partnership to share the benefits that we accumulate. Unlike this man who has accumulated all of it for himself, it can be a blessing. And many of us have experienced the blessing of our work by sharing it with others. Tremendous blessing. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But the people, the two people that, that, that uh, the teacher king describes here, feel that it's more blessing to get than to give. Verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one fails... The other one can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying together, close together, can keep each other warm. But who can be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Now, in the Old Testament, writers often use comparison strategy in order to show the way of wisdom or the path of obedience. They would compare one thing to another. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Two examples. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel wanted to show the state of loving God is more important than simply going through the religious motions. So he said to obey is better than sacrifice. That's a good example of comparison strategy. When Solomon wanted to praise the harmony of, of, of a loving home, he said in Proverbs fifteen seventeen, better is a dinner with herbs where love is than a fattened calf and hatred with it. And so the teacher king is using the same kind of comparison strategy here. He made several comparisons that were based on what he saw happening all around him, which provided practical wisdom for daily living in a very transitory world, short-lived world that we are living in today. As he describes, under the sun. Under the sun is a short, transitory place to be. And we need to be cautious about how we live under the sun. Because it could end very, very briefly. As we have seen recently, uh, the story of the young man who pulled into the service, shell service station because his stomach bothered him and he felt that a hot cup of tea would have helped. And he died before he got out of the car. It was a sobering picture to see the young man's foot out of the car with the white sheet over him. He was dead. He never anticipated that life for him would be so brief. So it's a transitory world that we're living in. And we need to be able to exercise practical wisdom. And that's what things that the teacher king is conveying here by this comparison strategy that he's using. He says, there's a better way to live and work. The teacher king tells us how. When he says, two are better than one. That's verse 9 of chapter 4. Now, according to this simple comparison, it is better to share the benefits of life and work than to try to make it on our own. I'm sure many of us have experienced that in our, in our lives, where we've had uh, partnerships with others that worked out much better than if we had gone it alone. He's not simply talking about marriage here. A lot of times we use this, we hear this verse, and immediately what comes to mind is marriage. 
But he's not talking about marriage here, even though every God-centered marriage is living proof of this principle. But he's not talking about that here. He's talking about all of the other kinds of relationships that we may get involved in too. You see, God never designed us to go along. We were not built that way by God. In other words, we were not manufactured by God to go it alone. Never. But to always live in community with other people. It's always good to have comrades. They have a system called the buddy system. And the buddy system is not just beneficial for school trips and swimming in the ocean. But it's also how God intended for it to be. It's how God planned for our life and service to be. The buddy system. And um, he made this very clear uh, since the beginning of time. Uh, When we read in Genesis 2.18, after he created Adam, he said, It is not good that man should be alone. So from the very beginning, God saw that it was not very good to live in isolation or to go it alone. Togetherness is better than loneliness. And connection is better than competition. But the teacher king gives us many reasons why this partnership is so workable and why it is much better than personal isolation in this passage. Two are better than one because they are more productive in their work. According to verse 9, he says, For they can help each other succeed. The man in verse 8, who was motivated to work by greediness, had no one for whom or with whom he could work. But when two people work together and work well together, they accomplish twice as much as what they could have accomplished separately. And so that's a good principle that the teacher king is conveying to us. Two are also better than one because they can help one another in times of difficulty. Whenever hardships come, we have a shoulder to cry on. I remember when Ryan was in school, he had another uh, friend, uh, brother from Grace Community Church. They were roommates, and they, they used to talk about when things were tough, when things were hard, they could, they could cry on one another's shoulders when it looked like they wasn't going to be able to make the next semester because the funds were not there. They could cry on each other's shoulders and they could pray together. What if they didn't have one another? Think of how lonely and depressing it might have been. And so two people can work together. They can reach out. The teacher king says, if one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone falls alone, Someone who falls alone is in real trouble, verse 10. And, and this, is, this, this warning is kind of a reminder that that television commercial I'm sure all of us have seen of the elderly woman who fell. She says, I've fallen and I can't get up. Remember that? It's a good, good example right there of, of, of having help when things go wrong. Sometimes this happens in life both literally and figuratively. We fall, and we need help to get up. Sometimes we are pushed by someone, and sometimes we just trip over our own two left foot. But we get over anyway, we fall anyway. But whatever the case is, we end up 
down. We end up down on the ground. We end up out. We may go down trying something new and end up failing. And that may be a down for us. Broken relationship or desperate financial difficulties may also take us down. A grievous sin may take us down despite our better judgment. The fact is, if we are all alone, we might go down and stay down. But if we're not alone, if a brother or sister in the Lord is there to lift us up with words of encouragement, we're much better off, aren't we? By simple uh, a simple reminder of God's love and mercy may be just what we need to help us get, up on, get back up on our feet. But then the, the teacher goes on to say in verse 11 that two are better than one because they can keep each other warm. Again, he's not talking about marriage here or the marriage bed. There are other implications to this. And we could probably think of a, a lot of other examples. But one is, if two people are in a, in a blizzard, they could sleep together back to back. They don't have to be people in a relationship. Two friends traveling or hiking uh, through the wilderness and they get caught in a storm and there's a ferocious blizzard. Uh, the idea is that they can sleep back to back and stay warm. Maybe two people of the same sex or, or opposite sex. But the, the idea is not a, a relationship as such, but as two people keeping each other warm. And that's what he's talking about. Talking about here. And of course, this is not just good advice for traveling. It's also wisdom for the soul. Because there is spiritual warmth in going through life with other believers. As many of us may have experienced in our own lives. It's easy to grow cold in the Christian life every now and then, ultimately becoming numb to God's work and eventually almost freezing to spiritual death. And there have been people who have been there, and they can tell you it's not a good feeling. But when we are growing cold, the heat of another Christian can warm us up, can keep us warm. And that's the picture that the teacher king wants us to see here when he talks about two together. One keeping the other warm, keeping each other warm in difficult situations. And so while some people may like isolation because they don't feel as if they can trust other people, God never intended for us to be that way. He never intended for us to live that way. When God designed people, he did so for us to have and enjoy companionship, not isolation. Intimacy, not loneliness. And that's what the teacher king is talking about here. That's the message that he wants to convey. This is why we find so many advantages in cooperating with other people in all kinds of situations. They always work out better when we cooperate with others. And so then the application principle here for us to get from work motivated by partnership to share the benefits is this. Simply serving others is not why God put us here on earth. Serving ourselves is not why God put us here on earth. He did so that we may serve him and others. Remember there's a passage in scripture that says, By love, serve one another. I believe that's in James. By love, serve one another. And that's the way he put us here. To love and serve one another. Serve him and others. Never isolate yourself by trying to go it alone. 
Sometimes we think we can make it alone on our own. You know, I got this. Leave me alone. I got it. And we end up in trouble and then have to call for that same help that was offered in the first place. And so the challenge is be a team member by trying to find companionship and reap the, read the benefits. Be motivated to work in partnership and share the benefits that it provides. It's always better than going alone. But then, if not motivated by jealousy or greediness, we can also fail in our partnership because of work motivated by looking for status or prestige. Some people are only in it to see how much attention they can get, how much prestige they can get. And so the teacher king makes another helpful comparison, which we, should, which we really should consider and think about, because I believe we've seen it so many times. The point of this comparison is that it is much better to lead others with a teachable spirit than to be too proud to let anyone teach us anything at all. And there are people like that. They believe they know it all, and you can't teach them anything at all. Here's a lesson for people like that. The teacher king says, he begins the comparison in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes by saying, it is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Now you wonder, where is he coming from? Well, he goes on and tells the rest of the story from verses 13 to 16. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. But, it, but then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him. But then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. So here we see a, what someone may describe as a rags-to-riches story about a man who rose from insignificance to royalty. Of all the lessons here that we really should not miss, among the contrast between these two kings, that is, youth versus age, poverty versus wealth, wisdom versus foolishness or folly, as the Bible describes it, the most important is their attitude toward advice. What was their response toward advice, and good advice, when it was given? The old king, according to the end of verse 13 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, the old king no longer knew how to take advice. He figured he had arrived. Know anybody like that? There are people who have been through a lot of things in their lives, and they get to a point where they feel, Man, ain't nobody could tell me anything. I know it all. Well, that's where this, this king got to. He felt that he had arrived. He no longer took advice. He had listened to his advisors in the early years of his administration. But now, his own counsel was all that he desired and wanted to govern his administration. It got to the point where he, be, he eventually became good for nothing to his own people. 
Now, that's a phrase that we don't like to hear describing ourselves, right? No one likes to hear the expression that you're good for nothing. Well, that's the description that this king got. Because he got to the point in his life where he refused to take advice. He listened before, but he was not listening now. And this, uh, this is a real tragedy that we see happen all too often uh, in our world. It happens among nations, but sad thing is it happens in the ministry of the body of Christ, where it really shouldn't happen. Um, and it happens all too often. We, we see these little churches popping up all over the place, and, and we wonder why. Well, this is one of the reasons why. Nobody wants to take advice. They figure they know it all. And if you don't listen to what I have to say, I'm going to start my own little thing. And we see it happen over and over again. So this, this story of this king is quite relevant to what we see happening in our world today. Uh, we see older men who hang on to positions of power, refusing to let go. All over the place it's happening. Now... While we think more often than not that gray hair brings wisdom, and it frequently does, the story should serve as a warning to older Christians. So we've got a warning here for those who are old, and we've got some warning for those who are not so old. Regardless of age, the wisest Christians are those who listen to counsel. They listen. They don't just hear, because a lot of times we could hear when we're not listening. And when we're not listening, even though we hear, it's not going to impact us anyway. We've got to listen to what we're hearing in order for it to have an impact. And so the wisest Christians are those who listen to counsel and, if needed, will accept the correction. They're not too proud to accept correction. At the same time, the verse also speaks to younger Christians, those who are younger in age by implying that the young and deprived, and the, uh, they can be quite capable of doing vital work for the kingdom of God and benefiting their fellow man as well. Sometimes the young people are written off as not being good enough or not being as experienced. Well, the implication that the teacher king is giving us here is that both can be just as effective in what they do, the older as well as the younger. And contrary to what the world praises and promotes, we need to be careful and not take it fully and grasp it that position and status are all that is needed to make it in, make it in life. Position and status are very poor ambitions to work for in life if it's not being done for the glory of God. And so the teacher king says, getting to the top of the corporate ladder, considered by many as success, is just meaningless. Don't strive for it unless God is going to be glorified and mankind is going to be benefited. That's the bottom line. Now remember now, the book of Ecclesiastes is written from a logical point of view. So not everything that we see here is practical for us. But it has some implications that we can take and apply wisdom to. And so the application principle here for work relative to being motivated for status or prestige or power seeking is work that honors the kingdom of God is accomplished not by telling other people what to do 
or by looking for prominent positions of status or prestige or power, but by simply having the wisdom to say, I still have a lot more to learn about life and ministry and God himself, not me or anybody else, but God himself will put me in the right place to serve not, any, not, not just when the time is right, but when God's timing is right. And that is important. So what really, as we close, what really is your motivation? As we look at these four aspects of motivation to work, what really would you say is your motivation for work as you go out each and every day toiling on the job? What is man's job or your job? What really is your motivation? Is it work motivated by jealousy? Is it work motivated by greed? Is it work motivated by a partnership to share the benefits with those around you? Those less fortunate, those whom you can help. Or is it work motivated by looking for status or prestige? You want everybody to look up to you and honor you. Like some of those folks who won't respond to you if you don't call them by a title. We would all be wise. We would all exercise wisdom to avoid engaging in work that the teacher king describes as meaningless. So what is your motivation? To work. So we pray. Father, we are grateful that the work that we all have comes from you as a blessing. But we don't always use it as the blessing that is intended for to benefit others. Sometimes it's used for selfish purposes, like greed and jealousy, and lifting ourselves up, exalting ourselves. We pray, Lord, that as we leave here this evening, we may be mindful of that which honors you in our work, that brings you glory. And as we go forward during the course of this week and are confronted with situations and circumstances, may we remember what you have said to us tonight, not just vocally, but in that still small voice that all of us must have heard this evening as you spoke to us privately and individually. And may we be receptive to what you have said. Bless us now as we leave this place with your blessed benediction. Take us to our homes in peace and safety, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and make you a blessing as you go.